Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Silence is complacency. Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and Chevrolet are teaming up for Real Talk, Real Change to help foster racial equality in America, and we're inviting you to help. Join me, Carlos Watson, as I talk with key leaders from across the country about race and the American dream. Look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk, Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or download The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts. Alyssa Milano has not only starred in popular TV series like Melrose Place, but she has also caught the activism bug growing up in a very politically active family. She has become a UNICEF ambassador and has been a pivotal voice during the Me Too movement. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Alyssa Milano recalls what her most interesting trips were and the impact those trips have had on her, who she has supported and campaigned for, and what she believes America's priority should be. Hey, Alyssa. Hi. It's Carlos. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you, Carlos. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, good. It's crazy that it's February already, and it's crazy that it's Thursday. The year feels like, I, know. I don't know how it feels to you, but it feels like it's moving fast. Yeah, I, I, I'm not mad at it moving fast, though. I think the faster it moves, maybe the faster <laughs> we'll be out of this mess right. that we're in as far as the pandemic goes, you know? Keep it coming. Yeah. Let's keep yeah. going. Yeah. Well, I I love that. Uh, well, I don't love that you got it, but I love that you're here with me and that you seem like you're in a healthier, better place. Are you Are you actually feeling better? Like like literally in terms of your everyday? Are you? I am. You know, I was sick uh, in March of last year, and I gotta tell you, I feel like this is the first month that I feel somewhat back to normal. Like it was that, it was that long. And I still have weird, weird symptoms every now and again. Like I'll have a shortness of breath or like the other night I was just laying in bed, my heart started racing and, you know, I have anxiety too. So, you know, when that happens, I'm sort of like, is this anxiety or, but, um, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't feel like my normal anxiety. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, 
illness to feel better because it attacks so much of your body in so many different areas that it just, like I still have this ringing in my ear, which I feel like that is the most frustrating, annoying symptom that I still have. Like if I didn't have that, I think I'd feel back to normal. Are you, have you picked up anything new in terms of exercise or um, meditation or have you like tried anything recently given you know, that's probably such a fundamental physical change and how you feel change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I always have exercised and, and meditated, but I will tell you that, um, there was very little that I wanted to do as far as moving my body in the last year, but I just started, uh, I would say about three weeks ago, I started doing Pilates again, um, and some yoga and some meditation. And so, yeah, so I'm trying to get up the, the physical resistance. I start a, a movie in Canada in uh, three weeks. So I'm trying to build up my endurance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Have you gotten on a plane since all of this craziness started? Have you gone places? Well, I mean, in the very beginning before, you know, in the the beginning, beginning when they were telling us not to wear masks and that whole thing, I was shooting in Portland. And so, and that was when Portland was the epicenter of the virus. So we don't know if I got it in Portland. Um, but then I, I flew to New York, uh, for a wedding and four people were diagnosed at the wedding, uh, with COVID. So I don't know if I got it there. And then I had to fly home and like, maybe a week after I got home was when I started to feel the symptoms. Um, so, and that was the last time I flew. Yeah. I mean, even we have a, a vacation home, um, you know, 40 minutes by flight and six hours if you drive and we've driven. So, so we would rather be in the car for six hours than be on a plane. So, uh, so yeah, so this will be the, my first trip. We're taking the kids my parents are going to come with us. My husband's going to come and we're going to shoot in Vancouver for um, two months, two and a half months. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, Vancouver actually is a beautiful place. You've probably been before. It's, it's, it's a beautiful place and everybody seems like they're in shape. Everyone seems like they exercise outdoor all the time. Yeah. It's true. It's true. They're always like running in the park, Stanley Park. And, um, you know, I think that there's something to be said for uh, health care available to everyone. I feel like that makes a nation healthier. Right. And uh, Canada has socialized medicine. So. Oh, interesting. So we know, were you on the Bernie train in 2016? I can't remember. Were you, were you? In 2016, I was on the Bernie train until he did not win the primary. And then, you know, obviously through everything I had behind Hillary, but yes, I, uh, I was, I thought, you know, what he was talking about seemed to be, um, the ideals that we should live by as, as a country. Um, I didn't support him uh, this time around because I felt like he was too polarizing for, um, you know, a time that was very uh, divided. And so, um, so yeah, but I have, I have a huge love and fondness for 
everything that he stands for and everything that he fights for. Your family, do you come from a very progressive family or what's your family like politically? I come from a very politically uh, active family. My parents uh, in the 60s, you know, were very uh, moved by the Vietnam War. And um, my dad was part of the student strike. And so I was raised to be incredibly uh, aware and that being a part of um, the direction of the country was a responsibility that that we had as as uh, you know adults and I was definitely one of those kids that could not wait to vote um, and that's how I'm raising my my children as well but I was always I, I would say, I wouldn't say as active but I was always politically aware. And I considered myself more of a humanitarian, really, than an activist. Um, I've been an ambassador for uh, since 2003 for UNICEF. And so my, um, my activism or my advocacy work was really about traveling the world and ensuring that children had uh, a fair and equitable and healthy childhood, and whether that meant getting them vaccinated or figuring out the infrastructure for, um, you know, feeding sites because of, uh, you know, how impoverished some of the places that I've been uh, was and is. Um, So, yeah, so I was more, I was more of a humanitarian. And then in 2000, when Gore had the election stolen from him, which I still say, uh, just like that, um, I started to get more politically active. And in 2004, uh, I was a surrogate for, for John Kerry and, and really worked my butt off to try to get him elected. And that was my first taste of like campaigning and, you know, going to colleges in the back of a pickup truck with a bullhorn and telling everybody why Kerry was the man. And, and, um, and ever since then, I've been, you know, incredibly just active. And then when you think about um, the work that I, you know, did with UNICEF or do with UNICEF on these field visits, um, they are intense, you know, couple of weeks of, of work where you see kind of the, the best and worst of humanity and this hope. And then you leave with a real um, appreciation for what you have and what we are as a nation. And so to deal with the last five years, um, it felt like I was in a five-year field visit, only in my own country. Oh, what an interesting way to put that. Yeah. So, you know, and all the things that we fight for as far as, you know, clean water and sanitation and healthcare and getting people vaccinated and um, conspiracies and uh, corruption and all of this stuff, misinformation that we fight as for as a as as a UNICEF ambassador, we were fighting here in our country. So it's it's been it's been exhausting. I did it the only way I knew how. I, you know what? Everybody should be able to say that uh, at the end. Where's some of the most interesting places you've gone? Because you know most of us all over the world born, live, and die within 500 miles. And so anyone who's lucky enough to ever get a passport and go to a new country yeah. uh, or by choice 
you know, yeah. is always in an unusual position. Where are some of the most interesting places, whether it's interesting, good or interesting, bad that you've been to? So um, in 2000, I lived in South Africa for three months and that was incredibly uh, life changing for me. It changed me on like a cellular level. Um, I got very, you know, it was 2000. So it was only nine years after apartheid was abolished. So the idea that the nation was struggling into how to uh, assimilate uh, their new freedom with the oppression of the past, um, you know, this was the, it was like one of the first years, the year I was there was one of the first years that white children and black children were, were going to school together. So it was, uh, they were still going through a lot of political struggle. And I, I volunteered in a township and a children's hospital there. And I just got so incredibly caught up in just the movement and how, you know, Bishop Tutu had this reconciliation, uh, you know, group that, that they were really, uh, especially, you know, coming from the States and knowing everything that we know now. Um, and in hindsight, they were really aggressively dealing with their past. And in a way that felt like there was going to be great progress. And so that was the first real sense of political upheaval. And, and you know, because at that time, what did, what did we have to worry about politically? Really? I mean, you know, we didn't have any, any uh, political strife to sort of deal with. So that was my first time being caught up in that. Not the social aspect. Obviously, our country has had many social uh, struggles, and I think we're still going through them now. Um, so I lived in South Africa for three months, so that was incredible. And then my very first field trip as a UNICEF ambassador, they just threw me right into the fire. I went to Angola only three years after the peace treaty was signed for the longest civil war in all of history. There was absolutely, when I say no infrastructure, I mean, I was sleeping in a, a building that had like bullet holes still in the walls. Um, they had, you know, the, uh, the capital was only built for, you know, 3 million people. And they had something like, you know, 6 million people living in the capital. It was, it was very, they had no healthcare system. And the really fascinating thing about this, I haven't thought about this for so long. So thank you for the opportunity to think about this. But the really interesting thing was during the war, well, a couple of interesting things that come to mind, but during the war, there was only one road in and out. And so what that meant was, is that HIV AIDS was not as prevalent in Angola than it was throughout Africa. So they were really at this sort of precipice of it going either way, that we could educate, empower young people um, uh, or choose not to do that and, and deal with the destruction. Um, that that disease can can play on a on a community, and um, it was you know you know I went to this 
this health clinic in the middle. I mean, it took us on a dirt road, probably three hours to get to this health clinic, which was so run down. And there was a young girl who came in who was going to get an HIV test. And she was so nervous. So I, in solidarity with her, decided to get an HIV test at the same time. And so we sat there not being able, they they spoke Portuguese there and to not, speak each other's language, but just to sit in waiting with this incredibly beautiful young woman um, was really powerful. Uh, I also, in Angola, had the opportunity, I don't know if you would call it an opportunity, but I walked through an active minefield with the Halo Trust organization, which um, actively uh, digs up landmines um and deactivates them or or you know blows them up um and that was so bizarre because we were as we were what in angola there were stakes in the road because they couldn't get rid of all of the uh, all of the landmines and and no weapon should outlive a war but there are these stakes in the roads and the the stakes with red painted red tips meant on the other side, it was probable that there were landmines. And so we once walked this path through, you know, a staked out section. And I was walking, I'll never forget, as long as I live, I could hear kids laughing and playing. Like that's how close children were to this spot. Then they handed me a tablespoon, a literal tablespoon and we got on our tummies and I was wearing the whole, you know, the, the bomb vest. We got on our tummies and we started to excavate this landmine and we finally got it. They, they hooked it all up and I got to detonate one of these landmines and really feel the insane power of what that does. Um, and the shrapnel and to see that. And then after that, we went to a, um, a, uh, a clinic for, um, amputees. Sorry, I still lose my words because of COVID, but, uh, for amputees from, you know, the landmines, um, and they would get fitted for prosthetic limbs. Um, and so, yeah, so that was an incredibly, harrowing trip. Um, and I was a little messed up when I got back from that, that trip, which of course I didn't realize coming right out. It's, it's weird because you get this, um, and any person that works in an organization in the field and any of these developing nations will speak to it. You get this very kind of stoic warrior instinct, uh, when you're there. And it's not until I leave that I realize what I've seen or, or been a part of. Um, so that was, that was heavy. Um, I went to India six months after the tsunami to see how villages and, um, communities that were affected by the tsunami were rebuilding. Um, that was a really bizarre trip because we would go home every night and be in like a Hyatt, you know, because the, the wealth inequality there is, is so intense 
and then we would fly and then drive into these these villages um you know and these are villages where people live on less than a dollar a day that were impacted you know it's it's the the beach communities um and so that was really fascinating um and and where and where in india were you the southern coast okay okay so kerala yeah we would stay in mumbai every single night we'd go back to mumbai and then we'd take planes and then drive all all around. And our focus in India was really interesting because not only was it about um, rebuilding communities, which was very hopeful to be a part of and to see them do that, but it was also about um, mother to tra- child transmission of H- HIV AIDS. I've always had that that focus because I grew up in the time when, you know, HIV AIDS was a big deal in my youth. And we've, we've come so far, um, we've come so far with it, but it was, you know, so that has always been one of my focuses, focuses in my philanthropy, in, in my philanthropy. But, um, so that was really interesting because we learned about how, you know, mothers who were HIV positive would give birth and how the mother could take a certain cocktail of medication so that she could still breastfeed, but not transmit the HIV AIDS onto her baby, which was just, I mean, really, really interesting. Um, but I would say the most interesting trip, I mean, those are all fascinating, right? Right. Those are good runner-ups. If those are your runner-ups, that's for, that's pretty good. Uh, so what is the most interesting? I, I've, I also went to um, I also went to Kosovo, which was interesting in a whole other way, and that was really about um, uh, the economic divide as well, and how impoverished uh, and hungry children were in the middle of a European country. Um, so I don't know why, but uh, three months after the war was declared over. Um, I was invited to go with Tommy Franks, General Franks, to the Middle East on a USO tour. Okay. And I mean, I thought there's no way I can turn this down, right? Not only because I've always been such a supporter of the military, but also because um, who else gets to see what that's like? So I didn't tell my parents the whole part of what I was doing before I left because I figured, I figured maybe not great to worry them. So what I told them was I was going to be all over the Middle East. So I did not tell them that we were landing in Baghdad. Oh, oh. So this is, this is at the time when there was a green zone and all the convoys were getting um, basically blown up. And, and it, it was incredibly dangerous still, even though the war was declared over, quote, unquote. And, I mean, the first place we went, we, we traveled on a, an army helicopter on a Chinook. And I thought, this is the most incredible thing. Like, who else gets to go in a Chinook? And we land in the middle of nowhere except there's a tent city 
and it's the army. And this was the first, uh, these were the first troops that were in Baghdad on foot during the war. So they saw the most blood, death, destruction face to face. I never understood this idea of disconnecting from trauma, even though I've totally done that myself. But this idea of like, how could you be disconnected when you are someplace where you have to be hyper vigilant, right? Like, because you're in the army, you have to be pretty aware of what's going on. I've never seen such just blank stares in my life. And it was, they were so removed, mentally removed from where they were. And it was incredibly difficult to watch. And I would, you know, sit at this table and take pictures. And and, and these were Iraqi troops or these were U.S. troops? No, these are U.S. troops. So they were the first U.S. troops that were on foot that went into Baghdad during the beginning of the, the ground war. Right. Right. So it was really heavy. But the thing that I think freaked me out the most was what a sensory experience it was. Because, you know, this was a time when journalists were embedded with these troops, right? So we had seen it on CNN. We saw, you know, bombings. We saw whatever. Um, What we did not, what I had no idea about was the smells, the heat, how uncomfortable the equipment was, the flies that were everywhere, the the food, which was all, you know, this, this packaged food and you ate one package if you weren't near a bathroom and then the other package if you were near a bathroom. Um, and it was so, so heavy. And then um, I landed on the Nimitz, which is, you know, an Air Force carrier, um, and spent a day on the Nimitz, which which was a whole other kind of bizarre, but almost civilized in a weird way because it is a floating city, right? They have dry cleaners. They had a McDonald's. People seemed much happier there, so that was a little bit of relief. And then the last, so, you know, then we went to Qatar and a whole bunch of other places in the Middle East, but my last day, I went into Baghdad. And I was with um, General Franks on his private C-140. Now, you couldn't look at the pilots or any, anywhere near any sort of equipment because it's top secret. So you're basically kind of forced to look in one direction when you're on this plane. And, and I did see out of the corner of my eye that there is a guy like this with like a button in his hand. I'm thinking like, what the hell is he, like, what is he going to release? The, the oxygen? Like, what is that? And so I asked General Franks and he said, no, that's to release the heat seeking missiles that in case someone tries to shoot us down, that guy releases the missiles so that the shoulder to air missile will find that instead of us. Well, being with, you know, having anxiety like I do, <laughs> right, I'm trying right, to process right. that. 
as I'm processing <laughs> that, we start landing. And in C-140s, they like open up the back of it while you're landing. But they start throwing like helmets and bulletproof vests into, you know, where we were. And I put on this bulletproof vest that I swear to God, it literally was so big, it would have just protected here. It had huge armholes and I'm having a panic attack. I put on the helmet, you know, um, this is not what I signed up for. And I look at him and I'm like, General Franks, I gotta tell you, I am freaking out right now. And he looks me dead in the eye and says, little darling, I guarantee you, we've got more bullets than they have. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. That's all you got. Cause I'm not so sure that makes me feel any better at all. But again, it was this, like we land and this, you know, there's, there, uh, there was a visual of this guy on a tank with his canine dog. It was, it was like out of a Oliver Stone movie, like you know. And then we're in this this van, and there's Black Hawk helicopters on all of our points to make sure that we're not being followed or that it was chaotic. And then we went to a few of Saddam's palaces, and. First of all, when we landed, I looked at the airport name and it was the George W. Bush Airport. They had renamed it. In, in Baghdad. In Baghdad. Our troops renamed the airport. Then I walked into one of, well, all of them had this. You'd walk into these palaces and there would be, it was like a hub of it was like, you know, you know, you know how bullpens in in newspapers are portrayed on movies where there's like a hustle bustle. Like that's what it felt like in these palaces. And when I say floor to ceiling American flag that is right upon entry of these of these palaces, I want you to remember that it's a Saddam palace. So the ceilings are like 30 feet high. So it is, they are the largest American flags I have ever seen in my life, floor to ceiling. Um, and then at one point from that, from it being in Baghdad, all of a sudden there was like this weird excitement and they were like, we gotta go, we gotta go, go, go back to the airport, back to the airport. And so we got back on the C-140 and- um, Wait, wait, no, no, why, why, why was that? Do you know, were they coming after you guys? I guess. I guess there there had been intel that 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 General Franks was there. Maybe I don't know. I I was terrified to ask at this point because <laughs> okay. like, you know the whole bullet the bullet and the story. I was like, well, what what is he going to tell me now? Like, so yeah. So I've had some really amazing experiences in my life, and I have seen humanity at its absolute best and worst. And I think that that's why I keep fighting for a brighter tomorrow and a better, uh, a, a, a more accurate depiction of the country I know that we can be. Um, is because I've, I've seen a lot. Silence is complacency 
Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and Chevrolet are teaming up for Real Talk Real Change to help foster racial equality in America, and we're inviting you to help. Join compelling conversations on race and the American dream, hosted by me, Carlos Watson. In these special episodes of The Carlos Watson Show, I'll be joined by key leaders and thinkers from across the country. We'll have pointed conversations to identify problems and arm you with solutions. If you're ready to make an impact, look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or on the audio version, look for The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to meet the moment. We'll hold the spot for you. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. think you'll ever run for office? You know, I don't think I'll ever run for office, but I don't, I don't, 
I think that there might come a time where I might be happy working in an administration that I believe in. I don't know if I can deal with the pressure of campaigning. And plus, I don't know, there's so much money in politics right now that very little time is spent actually doing good. A lot of time is spent, if you're a member of Congress, um, fundraising so that you can compete the next time you're up for election, an election. And that's not who who I am. I'm much more of a like a boots on the ground, let's fix the problem um, person. And so uh, I, you know, and I think that a lot of our representatives now, it's not even, and maybe this will change in 10 years, God willing, that we get some stability in our country. But I think our elected officials now, on the Democratic side at least, spend so much time not fighting for the things that they hope for, but trying to ensure that the things they've already fought for or the peoples who, whose shoulders that we stand on, that those rights don't get rolled back. And that just doesn't sound like a great, hopeful place to be right now. Now, who knows? Like, if the corruption is cleaned up and we get big money out of politics and it goes back to, like, being of service to your constituents, then... I think that would be lovely. But um, as of right now, it, it doesn't seem attractive. Tell me a little bit about um, Me Too. And I realize that's such a big conversation. I realize it's a conversation that thankfully you've helped uh, drive and shape and been in. But but having been so close to it, having been so active, having put yourself at risk, I feel like in so many different ways, as you look back, what what have, what have you learned? Like if you were to one day say to your kids, here are the two to three things that I really took away from that time, from the conversations I had, from the chances I took, from the things that I shared, reflected on. Like what do you take away? What will you tell your kids or your grandkids one day about the last several years and the conversations in and around Me Too? Well, I think it, it has affected um, how I ra- have been raising my children for sure. I have a boy and a girl. So we've had a lot of conversations, not around sexual consent, but about the idea of consent. Like you have to ask your sister if you want to play with her toys, but just ask her. And if she says no, then you can't. And no means no. And so to raise kids with that understanding now, I think, um, Uh, is something that I've been able to take away. I think the really interesting thing about the whole thing for me was, well, first of all, I I sent out a tweet. I never thought that it was going to turn into what it turned into. And it's interesting because at the time, I wasn't aware of Tarana Burke's work at all around this. And so as the days went by, and we were still trending at number one, and people started basically saying, you know, this isn't your thing. Toronto Burke has done this, been doing this for 10 years. I reached out to Toronto. And I got to tell you, I, I was so relieved to not be in this position of leadership of something this important. And to have a mentor and someone who had worked with uh, 
you know, victims her entire adult life and really dedicated her life to transforming um, victims into survivors. I was so relieved because what people don't know is that when this was all happening, um, I was being entrusted with a lot of people's trauma. And it made me realize that I hadn't dealt with my own trauma. And so as I was trying to be, you know, a stoic feminist, I was inside um, spiraling into a place that I was uh, the only way, I, I say this all the time, but the only way out was in. And I'm very grateful for Tarana's friendship because she recognized it because that's what she does. She works with trauma victims, right? And about, I don't know, maybe two weeks into it, because we, we were in the beginning talking every single day, she said to me, hey, you know, how are you doing? And it was the first time I realized that this was a, this was a personal thing for me. And maybe subconsciously people knew that and that's why it was as impactful as it was. But it was really overwhelming to have that kind of um, responsibility, really. And it was, I didn't, you know, four days into it, my, my rep from UNICEF actually called and said, I just want to let you know that this has reached Ethiopia. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And she said, yeah, two little girls who were being hurt by, by their teacher went to the authorities and turned him in. And they said, me too, me too. And that broke me. That really broke me. But it was also such wonderful, almost like validation that, that the way in which I choose to use my social media was making an impact, but also, um, you know, was, was something that uh, people were taking seriously. Because you never know, right? You send out, you send things out and, and you don't want it to just be a megaphone. You want it to feel organic to who you are. And so it, it was a lot. And the other thing that I realized was, and I don't know how I didn't understand this because I was raised, you know, I was born in 1972, Roe v. Wade was 1973, my aunt was, Gloria Steinem was her hero, um, you know, my mom burned her bra, I mean, there was, I was raised around feminist women, but I don't think I ever really realized that there has never been a time throughout history where women had full equity and equality. So much so that when you look back on books and, and textbooks on feminism, they don't even start before the 60s. So, you know, what that meant to me was, is that we were, uh, there was never a time when um, sex wasn't taken as ownership 
of a man. And that what we were really doing and fighting for, um, which, you know, I, I hate the term pa- patriarchy because I feel like people look at it like, oh, you're, you just hate men, which I don't. I love men. I love good men. Um, but, you know, when you look back throughout history and you realize, like, there has never been a time where, where women have not been abused sexually or uh, harassed or discriminated against um, it's quite an awakening. And that kind of shifted my activism a little bit. Like my, my baby right now, the thing that I fight every single day for actively is the equal rights amendment, um, which, you know, was written by Alice Paul in the early 1900s. Um, you know, and, and it basically says that, that we have the full weight of the constitution behind us. Um, and that Congress can legislate based on non, you know, being against discrimination. And so people don't realize that uh, women are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution, um, that the 14th Amendment has been able to, uh, lawyers have been able to sort of spin it so that it also includes women. But obviously, that was five amendments before the 19th Amendment, which gave us our right to vote. So clearly the 14th Amendment wasn't protecting women. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that is that has been um, my focus. Uh, I, I believe that we will see a time in, um, I'm hopeful, my daughter's lifetime, and I pray that I'm around to see it, that women are protected in the Constitution. And what a great message that will send for you know, not only our little girls, but also our little boys. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because, Alyssa, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is what would happen if given all of the craziness of the last several years, all of the tumult and the heartbreak and the heartache, what if we looked forward and said, how do we build America 2.0? How do we reset America? Yes. And what if we had a new constitutional convention? And what if in addition to a Washington or a Hamilton or Jefferson, you had a Milano or a Lakshmi or a Gladwell or a Gay or a Cuban or or a Kelly. And what would that, what would we end up with if Toronto Burke was one of the co-founders of America 2.0? We would be in a lot better, we would be in a lot better position for sure. And, you know, I think it's, I think what's happened to politics has is really sad because it has dehumanized these very human issues. Um, these issues of, you know, just the fact that there's 14 million children in this country that are going to bed starving at night, that don't have enough food to eat. 14 million children, think about that. 5.5 million seniors don't have enough food to eat in this country. Now, I, I, I don't think that's a partisan issue, right? Like if we can't agree on feeding the hungry, then I don't think we'll ever come out of this, this time in a better place than, than how we entered it. Um, and that's, I feel true with all of these issues that we have made so political. It just strips the, the, the humanity out of them. And I think if we could get people or think tanks or or groups or commissions 
to to really try to figure out like what we need to do to be better. And 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 part of the problem is is that I feel that the GOP has really lost its its way and um has co-opted weird things like the word freedom, right? Like to a certain part of the Republican Party, freedom means not having to wear a mask when you walk into a store. To me, that's not freedom. To me, freedom is to not have to worry about putting food on the table, right? Or to not have to work three jobs to make ends meet or to not have to live paycheck to paycheck so that you could save a little and take your family on a vacation or, you know, buy your kids Christmas presents. To me, that's freedom. And I think because they have co-opted things like the word freedom or the American flag, you know, certain visuals, I think we're a lot less and will be a lot less successful as a nation in getting things done to make the lives of American people better. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. 
We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So what would be at the top of your list if you were a co-founder at this new constitutional convention? What what would be number one for you? What would you want to make sure was part of America 2.0? I think we'd have to, uh, I mean, personally, um, it's different than what I think would be better for the country, but better for the country, I think, is healthcare. I think that has to be a priority. I think we are an incredibly sick nation. Um, And... The fact that uh, people can't get their prescription medication. I mean, I the, the amount of money my parents spend on prescription medication when they have paid in to the government with taxes, it, it's, it shouldn't have to be. It just shouldn't have to be. And so I think we got to start with healthcare. Um, and I think that that takes care of a lot of things because... I mean, people don't realize we live in a nation where there are food deserts. That means that there are black and brown communities where people cannot find fresh produce because there is not a supermarket. There is a convenience store. So people only have access to maybe the banana and the apple that is in the bowl at 7-Eleven. This is Horrifying. This affects everything. The intersectionality of what that means as a as a nation is terrifying. When I do, I did a lot of work work in Flint, Michigan, um, after the water crisis. Another thing that is runs parallel to what I fight for as a UNICEF ambassador, which is clean water. The fact that we don't have clean water in this country is crazy. But the that so many children were impacted uh, with lead poisoning. And the only thing that fights lead poisoning is nutrition. And so you had doctors in Flint that had to prescribe vegetables to children so that SNAP, the government, you know, which, you know, used to be food stamps, could get into this community and we could feed these children with lead poisoning with fresh produce that would allow for them to feel better. So I think healthcare is our, our nation's sick. We got to, we got to do healthcare. Um, uh, and then I, I, I think we need a, a commission on uh, uh, race and we need to really um, dissect uh, our racist past as a nation. And we need to, stared it right in the face and we need to figure out how we come out of it. I believe we can. I mean, when you look at, and maybe this is because I was in South Africa in such a political, amazing time. But if you look at what they were able to do after apartheid, it was because you had this commission that stared right at the problem. 
and said, you know what? We're going to figure out how to fix it. And it's not going to be comfortable for a little bit. It's going to be uncomfortable. People aren't going to know what to do. Um, but we'll figure it out and we're going to do it because it's important. And we've never had that in this country. We've never dealt with slavery in this country. We have never dealt with the mass incarceration that is a, an extension of slavery. And it's time. Too many people are heartbroken. Too many people are struggling. And it, it's, it's, so, it's so very vital right now, especially with how it seems like there is a surge in white supremacy. Uh, Alyssa, do, do you ever get to talk to supporters of former President Trump? And, and what do they, if you do, what do they say when you say something like you just said about stare the truth in the face, white supremacy, etc.? Do, do you ever get to have the conversations with people who, who, who wear MAGA hats, who support former President Trump? I have members of my family who supported Trump. Um, so I, I think that there is a certain part of the Republican Party that is going to vote Republican just because of the little R next to their the candidate's name. And I think that that is, you know, an indoctrination that they're probably born into a Republican family or get, you know, in college, find the young Republicans, what, whatever that is. And then I think there are a lot of very sensible uh, people that voted for Trump that that are not happy with where the country is or in the direction that he took it in. But they don't know how to, well, they don't know how to come, few things. They're embarrassed. Um, and I also think the left, there are certain people in, on the left that do not believe in reconciliation of this time where they're like, you know, they caused so much pain, we can't forgive them. And so they feel that, you know, they have no place to go. I don't believe that everyone should have to reconcile this. I, I think that, you know, those who are closest to the pain get to decide whether or not they forgive Trump supporters. But for those of us who can maybe carry some of that burden and give those people a safe place to land, and say, you know what, let's just, accountability, great, now let's move on. You help me get something passed. Let's get some, some signatures on this petition. Whatever it is as far as atonement for them, I think it's important. Because people's lives depend on bipartisan cooperation. And until people come together, the parties are not going to come together because they think it's what the people want. Alyssa, um, I want to do something called rapid fire with you. Do you mind if I hit you with five or six kind of disparate things? Sure. Different places? Sure. Um, what's your favorite book of all time? I can tell that you've been fortunate enough to think about a wide range of things. What's your favorite book of all time? Um, the Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Oh, it's a beautiful choice. That's a beautiful choice. What's your favorite color? Green. Green. Uh, what would surprise people who think they already know you really well? What would surprise them to find out about you? Um, probably that I'm super insecure. Interesting. How old were you the first time you realized that you had anxiety? Ooh. 
the first time I had a panic attack was probably early 20s. But then I suppressed that that's what that was because I was so afraid that I wouldn't be able to get insured. Because when you're an actor, you have to go for physicals and you have to disclose what medication you're on. And I was so afraid that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to get insured. So I kept that a secret um, until I gave birth to my son, which was nine years ago. Um, uh, best parenting advice you've ever gotten or given? Um, you get out of it what you put into it. Oh, nice. Uh, best advice on dreaming fearlessly that you've either, again, gotten or given? Um, it's okay to be scared, but don't let it stop you. The role that you did not get that you wish you had gotten? Winona Ryder's role in Beetlejuice. Oh, my. Okay, the film that you want to make in the future. What, what, what would we be lucky to get to see you make and be in in the future? I'd like to do a period piece. I could see that. Like maybe a turn of the century, some sort of, I don't know, something. Something where it's, it's not, you know, the modern thing that everyone's used to seeing. Um, your unexpected celebrity friend. Surprise us. Who's a celebrity friend of yours that we wouldn't necessarily put you guys together? I have so many weird celebrity friends um, that you wouldn't necessarily put us together. Um, I don't know, like the first person that that popped into my head was Mark Ruffalo, but that's probably an obvious, you know, because he's an activist too and an actor and that's how we connect. So I'm trying to think of someone who would be less surprising. Um, I can't think of anybody. Any, any close Republican? I have Republican friends, but none of the Republican celebrity friends, right? So that's um, James Woods or Scott Bayo or any of that people, any of those people I am not friends with. Although James Woods was very kind during the California fires and offered to help me get my horses out of my community, which was affected by the fires, which I thought was very, very nice. Um, if you could have dinner with absolutely anybody, dead or alive, who would you love to have dinner with? Can it be more, can it be like a dinner party? Oh, I like that. I like that already. Okay. So, um, Jesus. Okay. Um, Kurt Cobain. This is a good party already. John Lennon. Okay. Audrey Hepburn. Cause she was like one of the first actors that that used her voice. Um, and I can't imagine what that must have been for, you know, like for her. Um, she worked with UNICEF for her whole, you know, later years. Um, uh, let's see who else, uh, JFK. Interesting because, because why you had a little glint in your eye there. Angela Davis. Oh, um, JFK because he had such such impact on my parents and I also think that there's something very interesting about how we've become so obsessed with reality TV and I'm wondering if that started because America saw him get shot on live television and they just never looked away I wonder if that was you know, maybe some part of it. I don't know. Angela Davis. That's a nice one. That's a nice one. She's still doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, we were just talking to these twins, uh, the Lucas bros. I don't know if you've come across them, mm -mm. who just did this Fred Hampton movie 
uh, with Ryan Coogler. Uh, uh, and um, whenever I think about that, I think about Angela Davis and I think about uh, how, uh, how thoughtful and active she was. Yeah, yeah. I actually took a, a, a feminism class from UC Berkeley um, with Angela's best friend. And part of it was because I just wanted to feel like I was closer to Angela. And then I went and did um, something for, I think it was Indivisible in, um, or Indivisible in, Indivisible in California, some sort of panel that she was on. And it it was, I was starstruck. Oh, what about Jackie Robinson? He'd be cool to have at a dinner party. That would be, uh, you've got kind of a good dinner party. You're going from, uh, from Jesus Cristo to, uh, to Jackie Robinson. You like the Jays. You had John Lennon in there. You had JFK. You had Jackie Robinson. Uh, you had Jesus. You like the Jays. That's, uh, what's your middle I name? Do. You don't have a J. You don't have a J in your middle name, do you? Jane. Interesting. Alyssa Jane. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, okay. Hey, look, look at you. Uh, well, you know what? I, I I didn't know, but I had a feeling you were you were you were you were too easily there. Um, wait, now how did you get the name Alyssa? Where where did the name Alyssa come from? Were you named after? No. So my parents were convinced that they were going to have a boy, and they gave birth to a, a girl, and they didn't have a name for me. And my mom's sister looked at me and said, "She looks like an Alyssa," and she still, when I talk to her, she's like, I don't even know where I came up with that name because in 1972, that wasn't a thing. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, she named me. And then Jane, my mom, this is going to sound so obscure, but you know, parents are obscure. My mom was obsessed with the Shaka Khan song, I'm Every Woman. Sure. And so she, she gave me the Every Woman middle name, which was Jane. And from her perspective. Wait, and what, what's your mom's name? Is she still with us? Is she alive? Yes, Linda. But we go, we call her, well, her name is Lynn, but it, she she was born Linda Ronzo. Linda Mary Ronzo. And your dad? Thomas Martin M- Milano. Okay, okay. And my brother is Corey. Corey, because of course he was born in the 80s. With or without an E? No E. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I think I like I like the Milanos. Um, I'm I'm gonna leave you be, but 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 this was so nice. It was so nice to meet you. Thank, thank you. you for what what you've done. I really oh. um I I know lots of people thank you, but 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 make me one more of them. I'm really I <laughs> thank uh, you. Uh, I'm I'm grateful for what you've done, and um, and uh, I'm optimistic like you are that different is possible, that better is possible, not yeah. that it will be easy, but that it's possible. And uh, and so thank you. I, I, I thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Thank you. It's been it's been such a I appreciate so much you allowing me the time to reflect in a format that's not just short um, and to go back and, and think about all of my my blessings and things that I've been able to experience. So, and it's been my honor to be of service to uh, to humanity and our country. So, thank you. I hope uh, I hope I see you again. I'm hoping this world gets healthy, and uh, and the next time I see you, maybe it'll be in person. I'd like that. I'd like that so much. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 